สวัสดีครั้งนะครับก้าวเข้ามาสู่อีกช่วงหนึ่งที่น่าสนใจของรายการนะครับเรามาจะพูดถึงตลาดที่คนส่วนมากไม่ค่อยคุ้นมากนักนะครับเพราะว่าเราจะพูดถึงเรื่อง High Yield Market นะครับแล้วก็หัวข้อวันนี้ก็คือว่า f a d e Balance Sheet Reductions เนี่ยว่าจะมีคือการลดงบดุลของเฟดนี่จะมีผลกระทบต่อตลาด High Yield อย่างไรนะครับเรามีคุณคาร์ลเปเปอร์ฮิตเบกนะครับซึ่งเป็นคนที่ดูแลนะครับตลาดพวกฟิกซ์อินคัมตลาดโดยเฉพาะอย่างยิ่งเรื่อง High Yield นะครับของ Exa Managers นะครับ Management โดยเฉพาะเลยนะครับบินตรงมาจากนิวยอร์กแล้วก็เช้าวันนี้เองนะครับยังไม่ได้พักผ่อนแล้วก็เรายังไม่ได้เตรียมประเด็นอะไรกันนะครับแต่ว่าวันนี้เราจะมาพูดกันโฟกัสเรื่องตลาด High Yield กันจริงๆแล้วตลาด High Yield ตลาด Fixed Income Securities ของอเมริกาเนี่ยใหญ่มากๆเลยนะครับไซส์เหมือน40ทริลเลียนนะครับ40ล้านล้านเหรียญน,นะครับซึ่งประกอบด้วยตัว US Treasuries ตัว Mortgage Backed Securities นะครับพวก Agency Securities อะไรต่างๆทั้งหลายขนาดใหญ่มากแต่ว่าวันนี้เราจะมาโฟกัสการพูดคุยกันตลาดของบอลส์นะครับพันธบัตรซึ่งเขาเรียกว่า non investment grade นะครับหรือว่า grade เนี่ยต่ำกว่าทั่วๆไปนะครับไซส์ของตลาดก็ประมาณ 1.3 ล้านล้านและก็คุณเปเปอร์นี้นะครับเป็นคนที่ดูแลพอร์ตนี้โดยเฉพาะนะครับเราจะมาฟังความเห็นของเขาว่าเป็นอย่างไรนะครับ Hello Hello uh, I understand that you just uh, arrived this morning That's right Do you have time to rest Uh, I tried, but I wasn't able to fall asleep. You have any so. jet lag? I don't think it's hit me yet. So. <laughs> okay, let me start by uh, asking you. Uh, people from uh, this part of the region uh, are not quite familiar with the uh, high yield market, you know, as uh, much as their uh, colleagues or counterparts from North Asia, uh, mm -hmm. Korea, Japan, uh, Hong Kong uh, investors. They might have. More knowledge you know, sure. about this particular yeah. market. So, uh, can you start, you know, by explaining to the audience as to uh, the characteristics or, or the features you know, of the the uh, high yield market? Sure. So, the high yield market in the U.S. has really evolved a great deal over the last five years. Uh, the, the market size has grown by over 500 billion U.S. dollars during that time. And if you go back a little farther than that, if you look back. 10 or 15 years back into the past, the, the shape of the market is different. The type of companies that you see in the high yield market is also very different. I think, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, there were no companies that wanted to be in high yield. They were high yield companies because they were too small, they weren't diversified enough, their business model was weak, or they had too much debt on their balance sheet. That's not necessarily the case in today's high yield market where you see many you know, large double B companies with tens of billions of dollars of annual revenues that could easily be investment grade companies if they chose to be, they're choosing to remain high yield companies because they remain very uh, confident and comfortable with the liquidity and the access to the markets that they have. So I think some of the stigma when people think about high yield, they think about Michael Milken and junk bonds and, and that, that is kind of a stigma that the market still carries with it. Uh, but I think if you look at the performance of the market over the last 10 years, you'll see that the market has really outgrown uh, a lot of those kind of bad aspects of its reputation. Liquidity is much better. Price transparency in the, in the market is much better. 
and the quality of high yield companies has also improved quite a bit. Mm. So you're talking, uh, you're basically talking about the market which is uh, expanding. Correct, yeah. I think it's, it's been an expansion through corporate M&A. It's been an expansion through you know, the, the leverage buyout community. Uh, obviously, leverage buyouts are, are funded in large part in the leverage loan market, but also in the high yield bond market. Uh, but then again, it's, it's companies that are deciding that they can operate more effectively with some leverage on their balance sheet. Mm. Whether they want to use that leverage to expand their capital base, uh, or they want to use that leverage to buy back stock or pay dividends to shareholders. Uh, many different types of companies are, are making a conscious choice to, to be in this market because as it has grown and become a more acceptable marketplace, uh, I think it's, it's a way that they can give better shareholder returns. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, uh, people uh, from uh, this country or from this uh, region are not quite familiar with the U.S. Uh, high-yield market. So why should investors have the, uh, some of the products from the high yield markets as part of their asset allocation. Yeah, so I think a good way to think about the high yield market is to, you know, and, and our strategist Rob Schumacher will often characterize it this way, is that it behaves like equity with a coupon. And unlike just a dividend paying stock in high yield, really all of the return over time comes from the coupon payment. So if you look at the correlation uh, with, with other markets, although high yield is a fixed income asset class, its correlation with other fixed income asset classes is relatively low, has a much higher correlation with equity markets, particularly small cap equities. Uh, and so, you know, if you look back over, you know, over a historical time period, and I have a chart here, I think it may be the next slide. Uh, do we have the ability to... Yes, yeah, so this chart here, that blue line is the performance of the US high yield market, and this goes back to 2001. And here we're comparing it to the S&P 500, uh, the 10 year US Treasury, and we have a commodities index on here as well, just for a basis of comparison. I think a lot of people would be surprised to see a fixed income asset class that's been outperforming equities over quite a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the volatility of the high yield market, it's also been significantly lower than the equity market during this mm -hmm. time period. Why? Well, I think, again, it goes back to the source of return in high yield. You know, mm. that coupon payment is very consistent. Mm. And What's the average? Uh, the uh, average coupon in the yeah, market no. is a little over 6%. 6 right the average yield in the market is about 5.6%. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, that, that coupon payment is kind of the consistent source of return and helps to smooth out some of the mark-to-market -mark effects that you will see on the price. Mm. Uh, whereas in the equity market, you know, your returns, you know, yes, they can come from some dividend payments, but primarily your returns are coming through earnings growth, uh, you know, which can be volatile, and, and also multiple, uh, you know, the equity multiple, which can be even more volatile. Hmm. Uh, in your portfolio, uh, how do you go about uh, picking uh, issuers that have strong management, good cash flow, uh, good, good business models, you know, in order to... to, to uh, pick the right ones. Sure. So I think in our investment process, you know, the, the primary focus is on the credit selection. And, you know, that fundamental research, I think, has to be, you know, the, the base of, of any investment process in high yield. The principal risk that we're trying to avoid is default risk. Uh, and so, you know, we're evaluating the strength of a business model. Uh, what are the barriers to entry in that particular industry? 
what's the margin profile of the company and how resilient or defensive can that be throughout an economic cycle? And then importantly, you know, because we are worried about the company's ability to service debt, we're very focused on, as you kind of move down that cash flow waterfall, you know, how, how much cash are they generating versus the interest that they have to cover? And then importantly, what are they doing with the discretionary free cash flow that they generate? Are they using it to pay down debt and improve their profile? Or are they using it to pay dividends to shareholders, uh, which obviously we don't like? Or kind of in between would be, are they using it to make acquisitions or spend on capital expenditures to grow the business? You mentioned about default risk. In year two, uh, 2015, oil prices uh, came down quite sharply. Yes. And many uh, shale oil, shale, com shale gas uh, companies, or many issues, uh, uh, defaulted on their uh, obligations. Uh, yeah. To what extent that 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 you uh, been affected by that, and 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 how the market reacted to that during that sure. period? Yeah. So, the actual default rate in 2016 was only about 3.6 percent, which well, really that's manageable. yeah, that's pretty manageable. The the long term average is just over 3 percent, so it was a little higher than the long term average. However, at the beginning of 2016, when oil prices were trading below $30 a barrel, the market was pricing in a default rate of close to 10%. So the market really overreacted and priced in a higher level of defaults than we actually saw. Now, a lot of things happened to change that. I mean, oil prices really recovered. Capital markets opened up to these companies. They were able to issue equity. They were able to issue secured debt. They were able to sell assets on their balance sheet. None of that looked very likely in January or February of 2016. Uh, so, it, you know, I think it, it was certainly a scare for the high-yield market. I think the interesting thing to watch as well is that oil prices started to sell off in the, in the latter stages of 2014. They then rallied in the first half of 2015 before rolling over again and then hitting new lows. Uh, and it was really that, that second time around where the market started to react but it wasn't just a reaction to the fundamentals or to the expected default rate. You were also seeing fund flows, quite negative fund flows out of the high yield market. Mm. And that meant that portfolio managers were not only selling energy related companies, they were selling everything in order to meet those liquidity demands. So what, be, what started as kind of a specific commodity price related issue really spilled over to be a broad market high yield issue. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and say most of that was really just a mark-to-market -market reaction because it never really manifested itself in high default rates or losses on the bonds. However, the mark-to-market -market impact on the returns of, of mutual funds during that time period was pretty significant. Mm. Uh, you have the uh, first chart um, of different sectors uh, that <coughs> you, have ex you have exposed sure, to. Yeah. Uh, which are your favorites at the moment uh, in terms of uh, sure. energy, financials, healthcare, insurance? So which are the uh, top performing sectors? So for our funds this year, uh, telecom has been a big contributor for us. So uh, we, we are significantly overweight the Sprint capital structure. Sprint Telecom is the largest ticker in the high yield market. Uh, you know, quite a large company. Within telecom, you kind of have a, an interesting bifurcation of the market because a good percentage of the telecom sector is made up between Sprint and T-Mobile, which are the number three and number four players in, in U.S. wireless. 
And then most of the other issuers are kind of old economy wireline uh, telecom companies. So you know, the trends in the business there are much different. You have kind of a secular decline in that, in that old business, but you also have a business that generates a lot of free cash flow. So as we try to differentiate between those types of companies, we're really judging them on what are they doing with the free cash flow and have a bias towards companies that are investing in putting in fiber networks and kind of transitioning their business from an old economy secular decline uh, to, to a business that can exist in the future. Coming back to the topic of our discussion, um, how do you see the uh, Fed's uh, next move? to reduce its balance sheet you know, might have an impact or pose a risk you know, to the high yield market. Starting this month, September, they will start to, to I mean, uh, let go the, the, the bonds or the, the treasuries you know, in, in, in its holding, I mean, the Fed. So yeah. that means that liquidity will have to be uh, pulled out you know, from the system. Yeah. Uh, before you have QE, QE means that the Fed is injecting liquidity into the system, and now they are starting QT, quantitative tightening, meaning that they are pulling liquidity out of the system. So, how this you know uh, mechanism you know might have an impact on sure. the U.S. high yield market? Sure. So I'm not really expecting expecting there to be much of an impact in the near term for, for a few reasons. The first one is I think these movements have been very well telegraphed by the Fed. I mean. We're talking about this happening because of that, and, and we can talk very specifically about what we think it's going to look like because they have given us quite a bit of, of information, and at this point, I believe the market is well pricing this in. The other reason that I don't think it's going to have much of an impact in the near term is that from what the Fed has told us, they're talking about doing this at a very gradual pace. So, you know, I think the first several months of this will be a test phase where you're talking about very small reductions in their balance sheets that, that in their balance sheet that I don't expect to have uh, a dramatic impact on the market. They're saying they're, withdraw, uh, they're withdrawing uh, 10 billion per month, month, yes. per month. Yes. So that's not, not significant. No, I don't think that's a very significant number. Okay. No. Mm. But then they are lacking behind in terms of interest rate uh, hike. Yeah, so I do not think they're going to raise rates at the next meeting. Uh, and I think particularly given what's happened with, with Hurricane Harvey, and now we're having Hurricane Irma coming as well. Uh, I think the politics of this are going to be quite interesting. Uh, so I think the September rate hike, I think, has been off the table, but is certainly off the table in the wake of the hurricane. Uh, and I think even December, I think people are starting to question whether or not that will happen either. Uh, I think there's also political ramifications on the budget and debt ceiling debates as well, in that it's very likely that the funding for the hurricane relief will be tied as a political chip to the budget debate and the debt ceiling debate, mm. uh, which, which may make it less likely that we see a government shutdown mm. in this round. Mm. Uh, we are going back to, to, sure. to this uh, question, but then uh, I would like to know whether you are concerned about the, the liquidity uh, in the system. Do you anticipate that uh, you know, there will be a, like, uh, a liquidity drowning uh, in the yeah. event you know, of Further risk. So I, I, I think any potential liquidity problems are well out into the future, and they will be determined by how aggressive the Fed is as it looks to kind of increase the monthly drawdown that we're going to see. 
I think as it pertains to the high yield market, I'm not expecting there to be any noticeable change. I mean, liquidity has been a hot topic over the last several years, uh, particularly in the wake of, of the Dodd-Frank legislation and, and Wall Street firms in the U.S. have had to reduce their proprietary trading, reduce the capital that they can commit to trading in the high yield market. And I think the natural uh, thought process is that, that that was going to be very bad for the high yield market in terms of liquidity. What has been happening in the other direction is that the transparency in the market has really increased as now all securities in the high yield market are part of the trace reporting system. So the trace reporting system is one now where every trade that's done in the high yield market needs to be reported publicly within 15 minutes of the trade being executed. So this is a big difference from 10 years ago in the high yield market. And, and for almost 40% of the market that is labeled as, as 144A securities, these securities didn't trace until a few years ago. So the transparency and the liquidity of those securities is significantly better. And in my opinion, the, the positive impact that that's had on liquidity is at least as strong as the negative impact of Dodd-Frank. Mm. I've gone to a textbook and saw several risks involved you know, in the high yield market. You have liquidity risk, yep. you've touched on that. You have default risk, you also touched on that. Market risk, political risk, interest rate risk, inflation risk, currency risk, duration risk, repayment of principal risk. In your opinions, which risks feature you know, the, uh, the most? You know? yeah. So I would say the answer to that question is always default. Default risk is number one. Uh, I would say in today's market, the, the political risks, the regulatory risks, the Fed risks are heightened. Um, and you know, I think in the, in the political environment in the US, you know, there was a lot of enthusiasm in the markets when Donald Trump won the election. And as month after month after month goes by, and the Republicans have not been successful in moving forward the pieces of their platform, you're starting to see that Trump trade, as people call it, unwind some. Hmm. Um, you know, so I think the number one sector that gets affected by that is healthcare. Uh, because you know a big portion of the Republican platform was the repeal and replacement of Obamacare and when you saw Trump win the election I think that certainly caught the market by surprise and one of the first reactions that you saw was that healthcare valuations really sold off as a result of that so far this year healthcare has been another you know very strong performer as people are starting to say okay the timeline has been pushed out and and now, if we do get some type of healthcare reform, it's likely to be a watered-down, diluted version. And so, uh, I think the initial reaction to healthcare was was overdone. So, you know, I think if we touch upon interest rate risk, is I think is an interesting one in the high yield market because I mentioned before that high yield doesn't necessarily behave in a similar fashion as other fixed income asset classes, and this is a very good example of that. So. For high yield, a rising interest rate environment is almost always a good thing. So that's the opposite of the impact it has on almost every other fixed income asset class. And, and the reason for that is that typically when you have a rising interest rate environment, it's because you have a, a relatively strong economy, an improving economy, and that is driving the Fed to, to raise rates. 
or driving the expectations for, for interest rates to be higher in the future. The fact that the economy is improving is having a more positive effect on the credit spread. You see more spread compression than the negative impact of the interest rates. Mm. Uh, so you know, we can go back to a recent example of that was in, in 2013 when the Fed announced its intentions to taper we saw a pretty massive sell-off in interest rates in the U.S. I mean, the, the most longer-duration fixed-income asset classes had a negative total return in 2013. The high-yield market was up about 7.5% that year. So mm -hmm. interest rate risk, it's not that I'm not concerned with it. It's just I have a different view than I think a lot of other fixed-income investors do there. We are very lucky to have you here, you know, from uh, you're walking out of New York. But they, uh, I think most of the audience you know, would love to get the opinion as to what kind of president, presidency Mr. Trump is. Do you think that uh, he will last or not? Uh, is he, is he, has, become a, has he become a, a, a liability uh, of the U.S. market or not? Yeah, I think that, that given where valuations are in the market today, which is not which is not necessarily a result of Donald Trump, but where valuations are today, for quite some time now, I think people have been arguing that the market has been priced for perfection. And depending, it, I don't think it matters what your political view is, we haven't been getting perfection out of Donald Trump. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think that there are-, are You many, think he's been doing a good job or not? No, no, I don't think he's doing a good job. <laughs> uh, he's been lo losing a lot of staff, you know, from the White House. Yeah, I think he's probably a very difficult person to work for, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think on the, on the domestic front, you know, I, I, I don't think he's been able to have a clear message or to unify his party. I and mean, I think the reason why people were so optimistic from an economic point of view is that in this election, not only did the Republicans win the White House, but they also had a pretty strong majority in the House and a slight majority in the Senate. So when you line those three things up, you would expect that they would be able to pass some legislation, which they have been completely unable to do. And then I think on the foreign policy front, I mean, I don't think I have any more of an idea than you do about what Donald Trump is thinking. Uh, I mean, I, I read his tweets the same way you do. We only have to follow his Twitter. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's unsettling for markets, but again, in this type of market that is awash with liquidity, you know, you get a headline and the market reacts for an hour or two and then it gets back to business again and it forgets about it. And I think, I think there are a lot of risks out there on the horizon, but in this type of market, it's almost, it's almost like the markets are going to have to get punched in the face with something to actually have an impact uh, on the returns. Yeah, the, the stock market uh, has rallied strongly since his election on his campaign promises that he would repeal Obamacare uh, and also uh, institute uh, tax reform, and also infrastructure spending. But yes. in so far, nothing you know, has come forward. Are you disappointed with this? I am and Particularly the, the tax reform. Right, I think Wall Street cares the most about the tax reform. Yes. Uh, you know, I think the, the healthcare issue is a social issue. The, the tax issue is more of an economic issue. And, but they're very linked, I think, because I think the original plan was that they would start with the healthcare policy because in the reform of the healthcare policy, they would create budget savings. And then they could take those budget savings and roll those into tax cuts. Okay. So the more so the you- two packages 
they're combined. Tie together. Exactly. Yeah. And so as the healthcare has stalled and stalled and stalled, the tax savings keep getting pushed and pushed and pushed. And I think, you know, a lot of the multiple expansion that we've seen in the equity market, I think, is anticipating a lower corporate tax rate, a better return of capital to shareholders. And if that doesn't come to fruition, I think the market is going to be disappointed by that. Okay. The infrastructure piece, I think, is is a smaller impact, and it, I think that was always going to be the one that was the furthest down the road. Um, so, you know, I th but we still haven't gotten to step one yet. <laughs> so, so so far he hasn't been able to make America great again. Correct. Not yet. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm blank now. <laughs> uh, let me go back to my questions. I think Trump has that effect on a lot of people, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Not only you. <laughs> but then, if the tax reform has been passed, it would have benefited a lot of issuers because they are going to pay less tax. That means that they have more profits in their books. Yeah, so I think this question can become a little bit technical because certainly that part is true. If the, if the corporate tax reform was passed, there would be more after-tax cash flow that could be used to pay down debt or do other productive things for the company. One of the, one of the uh, potential pieces of the plan was to eliminate the deductibility of corporate interest. So this is something that I think in the near term, if it was passed, it would be a positive for the high yield market because it would create an incentive for companies to pay down debt faster. Mm. However, in the longer term, it, it removes an incentive to have debt on your balance sheet. So it may shrink the size of the high yield market overall. Okay. After the election, this was being talked about quite a bit. And more recently, I I, it seems like that's falling off of the agenda. So the corporate tax reduction is still certainly there. Uh, but I don't hear this removal of the corporate interest uh, deduction being talked about as much. Mm. How high is the probability of a government default in the event that uh, Trump and the Congress can't agree on uh, raising the debt ceiling? And the deadline is 29th of September uh, this month. Mr. Trump. Is, is tying, I mean, uh, is demanding that he get funding from the Grand Congress for the Mexican, for building the Mexican wall and also yeah. for federal, federal affairs, uh, which is uh, one of his uh, important political constituency. What's the risk there, the political risk of a government default? So I think the risk of an actual default is very, very low. Part of that is that the 14th Amendment of the Constitution prohibits that from happening. So uh, I think what, it, what will likely happen is that the Treasury... But it might be a technical default. Well, the, <laughs> the Treasury <laughs> Department is, is taking in revenues every day. I mean, at, you know, at every, every two weeks when I, pay my, when I collect my paycheck, I pay mm -hmm. revenues into the, ta into the government. So it will become the job of the Treasury Secretary to prioritize the payments that he makes and the payments that he doesn't make. And in the Constitution, the, the payments that get prioritized the most are the payments of principal and interest on the government debt. 
So I think it's, it is highly unlikely that we will see an actual default, but that doesn't mean that we won't see a government shutdown. Uh, you know, I, again, I go back to the fact that it did seem like the Republicans were gearing up that this was going to be the time to have this fight o over the budget and over the debt ceiling. And this is just my opinion, but when you listen to the rhetoric and how, how much the Republicans want to be seen as being the heroes, particularly in Texas with Hurricane Harvey, mm. I'm not sure that they want this to be the time that they have this huge fight. They want to get this funding in place so that they can provide relief to, to Texas and you know, we'll see how much damage comes from Hurricane Irma as well. Uh, it is, it's my opinion that it is now, it's become less likely that we see this be a very messy situation in the next couple of months. I think it's more likely that the can gets kicked down the road again and we're dealing with this again sometime next year. Mm. Can we go back to the interest rate risk? Uh, Janet Yellen, the Fed chairwoman, has uh, outlined a very clear path as to when you, know, you can see the dots, when the Fed's going to, to raise its rates, even though they might not strictly follow uh, this path. But then, interestingly, uh, the former Fed chairman, Alan Greenspan, he has come out, uh, I mean, at least a couple of times to warn that interest rate has been too low for too long. And this might uh, add uh, ammunition you know, for inflation to, to, to spike sometime in the future. He, he never elaborated as a wind. But then when inflation does strike, it will strike hard. By that time, the Fed you know, will have to raise the rates rapidly. Do you anticipate this interest rate risk, you know, going forward. If, I mean, uh, Alan Greenspan's prophecy uh, proves to be uh, fulfilled. Yeah. I mean, I think what you've seen over the last couple of years is that, yes, the Fed has had the dot plot and they've given forward guidance and they have been wrong over and over and over again. I mean, their, their economic forecasts have been overly optimistic for years. And over the last several years, they've given some guidance about how many times they would raise interest rates, and then they have not done it as many times as they said they were going to. And so I think the market has learned to fade the Fed, as we call it. And, uh, and I think this is happening again. I mean, as much as they're talking about all of this stuff, where is the 10-year U.S. Treasury? I mean, the, the yields are not going up. Um, so I don't think there really is much of a concern about inflation. I think, you know, you're not really seeing it come through in terms of wage inflation. Uh, you know, I think that the dollar up until recently had been pretty strong, and you know, uh, you know that is somewhat, that's something where we're essentially importing deflation every day. Uh, so I personally, I'm not particularly concerned about inflation today. And I think if the Fed, even if they do it slowly, if the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet over the next several years, I'm not particularly concerned about inflation over the next couple of years either. Mm. Okay, we're, we're coming to an important, another important risk, geopolitical risk, uh, arising of North Korea. I have to, I have to ask you uh, these questions. Uh, anytime uh, North Korea uh, launched its missiles, uh, President Trump, you know, would uh, wrote uh, his tweets in the very. Uh, Hashway, yeah. but then nothing happens, no actions so far. 
Are you concerned that these uh, geopolitical tensions, you know, might get out of hand? Because it seems to, I mean, as days, you know, go by, the situation seems to get more serious. Yeah, so I think in short, I, I am concerned because I worry that, that President Trump is going to put himself in a corner where he either needs to lose face or he needs to behave in a irrational or rash fashion. And that's not something you're really used to seeing from a U.S. president, and it's very disconcerting. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of lives at stake here, and and it's, you know, I, this is not something that I, th again, it's not something I think I have any particular view on that's more valuable than anyone else's, but I will, it's something that I am quite concerned about. It's not the type of language or the type of behavior that you're used to seeing from such an important leader. <laughs> so, going forward, what is uh, your strategy for 2018, you know, as far as the high yield market is concerned? So, I think we came into 2017 being cautiously optimistic uh, about the U.S. economy. And we gave a forecast for the high yield market of 5 to 7% for a total return. And through the end of August, the high yield market is up about 6%. So we're a little bit ahead of our forecast that we gave. We have been outperforming in that environment, but over the last several months, we have kind of been using this very strong market uh, in order to sell down risk kind of week after week. And, you know, I think we're trying to position ourselves that if we do see volatility, you know, and whether that comes from the Fed or that comes from, you know, a messy situation in Washington or it comes from geopolitics, if that creates a sell-off in the high-yield market and that creates spread widening, that's a better time to be adding risk to the portfolio. I, I like to take risk. I'm a high-yield portfolio manager, but I like to take risk when I feel like I'm getting paid for it. And in today's market, uh, in many cases, I don't think you're being paid enough to take the risk. So, so what does that mean? It means we've been selling down some of our triple C exposure. We've been selling down some of our higher yielding, 9% plus yielding securities in the market. We're buying more short duration bonds and lower risk, better quality bonds. Uh, and, you know, I think it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly what I think the catalyst is going to be that creates volatility, but as I said before, when a market is so priced for perfection, it doesn't take much to create spread widening or create volatility, and I think we'll try to look at that as an opportunity to be able to add risk in the portfolios. Okay, so about 5 to 7% this year, how about next year? So I think it's still a little bit path dependent between what happens, uh, you know, between now and the end of the year. But so let's say we continue on the same pace that we're on right now and we end up with an, you know, 8% or 8 to 9% return this year. That means we'll have an average yield in the market that will start approaching 5%. And I believe that 5% is a floor in the high yield market. I don't think yields can go below 5%. We've, mm -hmm. we've tested that floor a few times and we've kind of bounced off of it. Uh, so I would say if we end up with an 8 to 9% return for this year, then 2018 is probably a below-coupon year mm -hmm. for the high-yield market. Mm -hmm. But I still think there are lots of things that could create volatility between now and the end of this year. And if we reset those valuations before the end of the year, you could end up with another 
type of coupon, kind of mid to high single digit return expectation for next year as well. Mm. We have investors in this audience uh, getting interested in the US high yield market. Sure. What's your advice to them? Yeah, I think, you know, my pitch on high yield right now is that if I think about kind of the continuum of, of investments out there, and just to use very simplistic terms on, on the conservative side, you have the government bond, the, the risk-free asset, so to speak. On the more aggressive end, you have the equity market. High yield is, is in between, but kind of shaded towards the equity side. The thing I really like about it is that, it, let's say we're gonna do a five to 7% return. I think with valuations where they are for equities, I think five to 7% is an equity-like return. And in the high yield market, you're getting that return via coupon payments, not multiple expansion, not earnings growth. Mm -hmm. And you're, Which one is riskier between the equity market and, and... So historically, the equity market has been much riskier. Risky, and, yeah. and I would argue, given where valuations are today, I feel the same it's way. More volatile there. Correct, the yeah. Okay. I mean, in the last 20 years, we've had three negative years in, in the high yield market. 2015, everyone thinks 2015 was such a bad year the high yield market was down 4.6% in 2015, and that was the second worst year out of the last 20. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I, what the, I think the, the attractiveness of the high yield market is that you're earning that mid to high single digit return, but you're doing it with less volatility than, than other asset classes that are getting you that equity-like return. Mm. Uh, some people um, are asking this question. You've got a very low interest rate environment uh, going on over the past almost like a decade now. And in this low interest environment, companies that should not have got capital or have access to capital can get it cheaply. Yeah. And then uh, it's quite uh, difficult to differentiate you know, between the strong issuers and, and the weak ones because they, they all you know, have the same uh, access to, to, to this low interest rate in environment. So how do you go about to differentiate, you know, between these strong players uh, as opposed to, you know, those who almost like get a free ride, you know, yeah. in this environment? Yeah, so I think this has been somewhat limited in this cycle by the fact that we put so many more regulations in place in the last cycle. So. You know, if we talk about the, the private equity industry and leverage buyouts, in the last cycle, it was very common to see leverage buyouts getting done at eight times, nine times, even 10 times EBITDA. Today, you're not seeing that. A, a levered LBO today is getting done at six and a half, may, maybe seven times. And one of the reasons why it's more difficult to lever up these companies today is that the Fed is now regulating leverage loans. Mm. And, and, and the restrictions are really quite tough. And underwriters are not willing to underwrite these loans because they don't want to get a tap on the shoulder from the Fed. So if you're a private equity firm and you're, you're underwriting your LBO, you want to put as much bank debt on the capital structure as possible because that's your cheapest debt. And if you can't do that, it means that your IRR calculation is going down. So a lot of these LBOs are just not getting done because they can't be financed as cheaply as they were in the last cycle, even though we're awash in liquidity and yields are quite low. Mm. The capital is actually not available to some of these companies. What you are seeing a lot of in this cycle is that the companies that are able to borrow, particularly the double B companies, they are borrowing at very low rates. And a lot of these companies, just like investment grade companies, are using the proceeds of debt deals 
to buy back stock or pay dividends. So you're levering up some of these balance sheets uh, by doing so. And these are really the companies that I think are taking advantage of this environment. And frankly, I don't believe them, or I don't blame them. If I was the CFO of one of these companies, I would be doing the same thing. So, so from a portfolio's uh, manager's point of view, uh, is it more challenging to manage uh, uh, the high yield markets with non-investment uh, grades, you know, bonds, uh, as opposed to the investment graded bonds? Yeah, it's certainly more exciting. Uh, I would say... You're focusing most of your time on, on this. On high yield, high yeah. Yield. That's always been kind of how I grew up in the industry and that's yeah. been the market I've always been focused on. And, uh, you know, I think the high yield market is a very interesting place to invest and it's also a place where you see a lot more differentiation between the good managers and the bad managers. You know, in, in investment grade, you're talking about a few basis points separating people. In high yield, it can be hundreds of basis points that, that separate people. Another thing that I think is interesting and kind of rewarding from my perspective is that, you know, passive investing has been a very hot topic this year and ETFs have been getting a lot of attention. In the high yield market, the ETFs don't work very well. It's, it's, it's really, so far has been impossible to replicate the high yield index. You have about 900 issuers in the high yield index. You have about 1,800 different bonds that you're looking at. And no one has been able to figure out an, an algorithm or a formula or a way of trading effectively to, to replicate that high yield index. And so on average in high yield, between 60 and 70% of managers are underperforming that benchmark every year. And that includes the ETFs. The ETFs are well under the benchmark. So as an active manager, it, it gives me an opportunity to not only beat the index, but to also beat these other passive forms of investing and be able to demonstrate the value of an active manager in this asset class. Mm. And I don't think all asset classes can say that. Mm. So. Um, the size of the uh, high yield market now is about 1.3 trillion. Uh, how do you see the growth rate, you know, going forward? Yeah, so... Is there room for further expansion? Yes, I, I think there is, but I, I don't think we're going to see that until the next cycle. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of the growth that we have seen, as I said, it's, it's bigger companies that are choosing to be in the high-yield market, but a lot of it has also, frankly, come from the expansion of the energy industry in the U.S. And... You know, we're, we're seeing that type of new issue activity slow down some, and with oil prices kind of trading between $45 and $55 a barrel, I don't see the same type of growth capex, you know, fueled, you know, uh, debt financing that we have seen in the past. I do think that over time, as, as long as Trump does remain president, I think one of the things that he has made some progress on and that I think he will continue to make progress on is deregulation. And you, you could start to see things like the Fed regulating leveraged loans. If they don't do away with it, maybe they water down the regulations or they loosen the regulations. And those are the kinds of things that can cause LBO activity to pick up, which adds new volumes to the high yield market. Mm. So I think maybe one last point is that I kind of joke around that the, the dirty secret of the high yield market is that we're always receiving these coupon payments and most of those coupons are reinvested back into the market. So if I look at a year like this year, there's actually been net negative money in the high yield market. We've lost around $20 billion of flows this year 
yet we still are up 6% through August, and the market has had a very strong positive technical throughout the year. And the reason for that is that that coupon income is so large, and most of it's being reinvested into the market. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. I'm going to ask you a question about Carl Pepper Whitbeck. He said that the high-yield market is still going to be good. In the past year, he thinks that the return is about 5-7%. เลยทีเดียวปีหน้าก็อาจจะประมาณ 5% นะครับยังคงไปได้ดีและก็เขาบอกว่าจริงๆแล้วเนี่ยตลาดนี่คนบอกว่าเสี่ยงจริงๆแล้วถ้าเปรียบเทียบกับตลาดหุ้นนะครับตลาดหุ้นนี่ยังเสี่ยงกว่าอีกนะครับตลาดหุ้นเนี่ย volatility หรือว่าความผันผวนเนี่ยของของตลาดหุ้นเนี่ยมีมากกว่าประเด็นหลักที่เราต้องการคุยวันนี้ก็คือว่านโยบายของเฟดนะครับหรือว่าทางการธนาคารกลางสหรัฐที่จะลดงบดุลของตัวเองลงนี่จาก 4.5 4.5 ล้านล้านลงเนี่ยซึ่งหมายถึงว่าสภาพคล่องนี่จะต้องถูกดูดออกจากตลาดเนี่ยจะมีผลกระทบอย่างไรต่อทิศทางของดอกเบี้ยต่อทิศทางของสภาพคล่องเนี่ยดูเหมือนว่าเขาไม่ได้กังวลใจเกี่ยวกับเรื่องนี้มากนักนะครับต้องเข้าใจนะครับว่าตลาดของสหรัฐอเมริกาเป็นตลาดที่ใหญ่มากแล้วก็มีสภาพคล่องที่สูงมากเลยทีเดียวนะครับในไฮยูเนี่ยมีเซกเตอร์ต่างๆทั้งหลายเนี่ยเยอะแยะไปหมดเลยนะครับแต่ว่าเขาค่อนข้างที่จะเห็นเซกเตอร์ของเทเลคอมเนี่ยค่อนข้างที่จะโดดเด่นนะครับสำหรับเรื่องทรัมป์เองเนี่ยเขาก็ไม่ได้ว่าทรัมป์เนี่ยดีเด่นมากนักนะครับในช่วงที่ผ่านมาแคมเปญเนี่ยหาเสียงเลือกตั้งนะครับว่าจะแก้กฎหมายนะครับเพื่อจะล้มกฎหมายประกันสุขภาพของโอบามาแต่ว่าก็ไม่สําเร็จนะครับไม่ได้เสียงพอในสภาคอนเกรสแล้วก็เรื่องซึ่งมันก็ผูกผูกกันกับตัวนโยบายแผนการลดภาษีของทางของทางด้านทรัมป์ด้วยซึ่งหุ้นที่ผ่านมาเนี่ยที่มันแรลลี่มากเนี่ยเพราะว่านักลงทุนคาดการว่าทรัมป์จะลดภาษีพอลดภาษีเพื่อบริษัทก็จ่ายภาษีน้อยลงก็ได้กําไรนะครับเออร์เน็งก็ดีก็เลยแห่กันแต่ว่าก็ยังไม่ดีเลเวอร์อินฟราสตรักเจอร์ก็ยังไม่ดีเลเวอร์ประเด็นใหญ่อีกเรื่องหนึ่งก็คือเรื่องเด็ดซิลลิงนะครับซึ่งหรือว่าเพดานนี่ซึ่งจะครบกําหนดวันที่29กันยายนนี้เขาผมบอกว่าผมถามเขาว่าโอกาสที่จะดีฟอลต์เนี่ยมีไหมนะคนเป็นหุกห่วงว่ารัฐบาลกลางเนี่ยจะจะจะผิดนัดชำระหนี้เนี่ยเขาบอกว่ารัฐมนูญเนี่ยห้ามนะครับมีกฎหมายห้ามไม่ให้ดีฟอลต์กระทรวงการคลังก็จะคงเก็บรายได้จากภาษีก็คงจะต้องไปอุดแล้วก็ท้ายสุดมาแล้วเนี่ยเกิดเหตุการณ์ตัวเฮอริเคนฮาร์เวย์ซึ่งมีผลกระทบต่อรัฐเท็กซัสมากคนอเมริกันซัฟเฟอร์มากเลยทีเดียวเพราะด้วยสถานการณ์แบบนี้เนี่ยก็ไม่เป็นการฉลาดที่ทรัมป์หรือว่าสมาชิกของสภาคอนเกรสเนี่ยจะเล่นการเมืองกันมากในขณะที่ประชาชนก็ยังคงลำบากอยู่ overall สรุปครับเขายังมองว่าตลาด5ยูนะครับยังคงไปได้ดีนะครับสำหรับวันนี้เวลาหมดลงพอดีนะครับขอบคุณครับผมกับคุณคาวครับ Thank you very much.